do want to say it's wonderful having you here. I'm going to be reading from the Bible. If you brought a Bible with you, it would be great if you could turn to the book of Ruth. Before I um, read this, I'd love to pray. Father, we thank you for this story that we've been looking at for these last three weeks. We do declare the Bible is your word, it's God's word. And as we come and we read it, and some of us have heard this story for years, and for some it might be the first time, we do want to be those that are impacted by your word. I pray right now, God, that our hearts will be open to hear from you, and not just to hear, but to put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we've been looking at this over the last uh, three weeks, and so I just want to give you a quick recap in case you've not been around or in case you've forgotten or nodded off on previous weeks. Uh, Chapter one, this is a story, some would say it's one of the sweetest, greatest small stories on planet Earth. Chapter one, basically Naomi and her husband leave their homeland in Judah due to a famine. Her husband, Elimelech, dies, and the two sons marry Moabite women. But then both of the two sons die. After 10 years of marriage, no children have come about from either of the daughters. Naomi learns that God is actually providing food again for his people back in the promised land in a place called Bethlehem that you might have heard of at Christmas time. So one daughter-in-law decides to go back, that's Ruth, and the other one decides to stay in Moab. And if I try to give you one word for chapter one, I would say it's this, hope. Because right at the end of the chapter, what happens is it suddenly says, and the barley harvest was about to begin. And despite all this darkness and this sort of disappointment, and it can feel quite a heavy chapter, you can think, oh, it's just death and tragedy. Uh, Naomi renames herself Mara because she says, I'm bitter. Actually, there's some hope. Then we go into chapter two, and in chapter two, Ruth ends up gleaning. This is like literally going around after the harvest, picking up bits that have been left. God told them that they're to leave uh, extra at the edge so that the poor can come and gather She ends up gleaning in a field belonging to a guy called Boaz, who turns out to be a a relative. He is really kind to her. He ends up saying to her, actually, it's hot work. If you fancy a drink, please come and help yourself to drink. He actually says, look, you can come and join me for lunch. It wasn't just that he was feeding her. He was bestowing honor upon her. He actually says to his servant girls, look after her. He says, stay with her. So this was a foreigner, and he's introducing her to community. And we know the key for that, I think it's verse 12, where it says, actually, God honors you because you've asked to be under the wing of God. And it's almost like she'd come to this foreign people and she'd said, I want to be under the the wings of God. And and he says, well, that's why grace has been shown to you. And I said that chapter two is a picture of grace, the grace of God. Chapter three, we're left on a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of chapter two. We think, will they marry or not? And then in chapter 3, they have this plan. Naomi, the mother-in-law, says to the daughter Ruth, what I want you to do is I want you to go in the middle of the night, find Boaz, he's going to be threshing. I want you to find him and actually sneak under the cover. I mean, it's, it's well steamy. You should have been there last week. What was all going on? She sneaks under there. Basically, this was a picture. It was saying, throw your cover over me. It was a bit like an engagement in those days. It's almost saying, well, actually, if you ask me to marry you, I'd love to get married. We discover from then what I would call the whole thing of the Redeemer. So we've got that as the name of the church, and actually it's a picture there. And and that was a word that came out, we said, from chapter 3. This is 
In fact, Ruth says, a redeemer. You see, Boaz wasn't the closest. And the thing about learning about redeemer is so often we think he was just fulfilling the law. He wasn't fulfilling the law because that was the closest redeemer. She said, you're a redeemer. No, it's my redeemer. And so he steps in in passion. And we said, actually, God feels passionately towards us. And so now we get into chapter four, which is our final chapter. Terrible, isn't it? I, I've, I've so enjoyed the book. I wish there was like 54 chapters. You know, we could have done a whole year. 52 chapters, a whole year on it, you know what I'm saying? We're going to read the whole chapter and then see what God is going to say to us this morning. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For, I, for, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech. Kilion and Malon, and I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. It's a little bit like you should be getting excited now. It's almost like, yeah, they just announced you can kiss the bride. Whoa, you know, that's the story. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the women who is coming into your, the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, 
laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. It's great, isn't it? I mean, to me, what an exciting end to this story that we're looking at. I want to just quickly go through and try and unpack the story and then try and get to what's the word that we think would impact us today from this account. I guess that it's split into three parts, and I'm not going to go into loads of detail about this, but I think from verse 1 to 12, it's almost like he, he wins one. He gets his wife. You know, suddenly we know that they're, they're going to be happy together. We might not have understood some of these things, but I can just try and put it into context. Going to the town gate was a place to meet. You see, in those days, the streets in Bethlehem were quite narrow, and it's almost like if you want to gather people, you would go to the town gate. They think there was often alcoves built there, which is why they could even say, come and sit down. People literally would be invited to sit there. That's where they, they did business. That's where they administered justice. This is where you can read elsewhere in the Bible that kings would speak or prophets would speak. This was a place that you went to. Now, now again, I think what's fascinating is Boaz goes there and it just so happens that the, the kinsman redeemer comes along. And you might not have picked this up, but week after week we are discovering that it just so happens. Just so happens that actually Ruth was in Boaz's field. It tells us that in Ruth 2. It just so happens that Boaz came along at that time. It just so happened that Boaz laid at the far end of the pile so that Ruth could go and approach him in the middle of the night. I don't know how your life is going, but we genuinely believe that our life is in God's hands. We genuinely believe that. Sometimes we can believe it when it's good, can't we? If we're really honest, we think, oh, God, when it's good, I'm trusting you, you're looking after me. This tells us that actually God is sovereign. God is in control. Our life is in his hands. I don't know how many of you have seen the film, The Sliding Doors. Anyone seen that? If not, it's a really naffy example. But basically, the whole film is that somebody's trying to get on the tube and uh, it's like one of them, the doors just shuts. You know that frustrating thing, isn't it? You know, they don't get on. And, and another time, it's almost like they live in this parallel world that they do get on. And obviously then their whole life lives in parallel. I think sometimes we're in danger of living like that, aren't we? We can look back on life and think, if only. If that had happened, if that hadn't happened. If, you know, if I'd have said that, oh, if I wish I hadn't have said that. And we can end up sort of living like this. I think we've got to believe that God has got exact times and places set for us. That's the God we worship. I'm going to keep going through the story because I'm hoping just to, to flesh it out so that we understand it. And then we try and get the picture that's coming through. I don't, I, I'll, be, I'll be really honest. I, I had speech therapy as a kid. I've mentioned this probably before. So reading those words you know, gets me in a sweat, if I'm totally honest. 
And so if I can't remember your name and I bump into you in the street, I would call you mate. I just forget, all right, mate, great to see you. But obviously we're in church today, so I go brother or sister, because that's almost like we get around it. All right, great to see you, brother. I think, oh, it's Adam, isn't it? No, no, it's Edward. You know what I'm saying? We struggle. In the scripture here, it says, my friend. Many of the commentators would say that actually that's an unhelpful way of translating this. Because what they called him, what they called him was Mr. So-and-so. And what they were really suggesting then was, I'm not going to use your name because there was impending judgment coming. And so, you know, we could tend to think, oh, did they just forget his name? What was this guy's name? We don't know. Some have said, well, it was written afterwards and they're trying to protect the family from shame. But actually, there's almost this sort of sense of, well, we, we really don't know his name and we're not being told it. I guess I find it fascinating because the guy, it's almost like he's not going to be involved in the line of the king because he's worried about his own reputation. And yet his reputation is totally removed from Scripture. I think, again, I think, oh, God, I don't want to get so caught up in my name or this. We want to get caught up in his name, don't we? There's many other details that we could look at here. Why were there ten elders? Some people have said, well, you needed ten to form a synagogue. That was actually after this time, so I don't want to read too much into that. We don't know why the land was brought up. What we do know is that Boaz was trying to do the right thing. He wasn't the closest kinsman redeemer. And when he did the right thing, it went wrong. Do you pick that up? You know, he suddenly says, look, I want to marry this girl, but actually you're first in line. Would you like to marry her? And he goes, yeah, I will. I wonder what Burroughs was thinking in his heart. Hang on, this is not how the story's supposed to end. I love her, don't you realize? I met her at midnight. Oh, no, no, they couldn't admit that, because, you know, but it's almost like we, we had an agreement we were going to marry. And I think sometimes it can be like that, can't it? We try and do the right thing for God, but then it feels hard. And it feels tough, and you think, oh, it's not quite worked out. Even the whole business of sandals, I, I don't fully understand this. I don't want to get sidetracked by it. I mean, I think, what happened? Did they hop home? I mean, we don't know the details of this. I mean, did they give the sandal back? Was it just a sort of symbolic transaction? We, we know there's a blessing that's given there. There's a blessing, isn't there, of, of actually God can do something. Rachel and Leah, this large family, they're basically saying, we want you as a family to be blessed. We want you to be wealthy and to be famous. Perez had also married somebody, well, actually had a child with somebody who was outside of, of the people, the Gentile, as they were called, became powerful and influential. And they're saying, actually, just like it happened in the past, we want it to happen now. Hopefully that just gives us the background to this marriage. And then we go on to verse 13 to 17. And like I say, it was, a, it was a colorful, wonderful, bright wedding day. I don't know if you've got married, you know, it's probably one of the highlights of your life. I got married on the 25th of July, 1992. All the planning that goes into it, the color that goes into it, the, we had healing balloons there and the napkins that tie in with the tie. You know, everything's planned. There's this exciting, colorful day. But what was probably more exciting, and some commentators think it happened on the wedding night, but maybe that's been a bit romantic, is that the result of this wedding, there was a child. Now you could think, let's be honest, Pete, that happens in lots of cases. You've got to remember, 
that Ruth had been married before for 10 years and not had a child. And you've got to remember that the blessing where they mentioned Rachel first, although she was the younger of the two girls, was also another barren woman that God blessed later with a child. And so there was a sense of, actually, this is a God thing. God has allowed, it's like God has blessed you with a child. The Lord enabled her to conceive. And again, I would take from a story like that, what can I believe God for? What kind of miraculous thing could I believe God for? We know that God provides. But what I'd like to pick out of this little thing about almost growing a family, and this is what they're doing in this section, is the whole thing of Naomi. See, I really like the name Ruth. I think it's quite an attractive name. You know what I'm saying? I wonder sometimes, should the book have been called the book of Naomi? Because actually the story starts with Naomi, and in many respects it ends with Naomi having the child. You know, it's almost like the beginning and the end of this whole book is Naomi. And, and in some respects, you know, there's this wonderful picture, isn't there? Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. In some respects, there's this huge, beautiful picture. If you look at chapter one, she was empty, and now she's full. If you look at chapter one, it was all about barrenness, and now it's God's blessing. If you look at chapter one, it was to do with death. And now it ends up with life. You know, there's this wonderful, wonderful picture in Naomi. I'd like to suggest that um, actually what this says is God has not abandoned Naomi. I think there's this beautiful picture here that actually she's not being abandoned. It could feel at the beginning of the book that her husband's died, her sons have died, she's got no food. The daughter-in-law, you know, she ends up pushing away. She's had so much pain, it's almost like she can't stand family close. I'd like to ask a question. Do you feel abandoned by God? Or have you felt abandoned by others in life? Let's be honest, if you've been through a bitter divorce, if you've got a boss at work, that overlooks you? Have your parents given you up for adoption? Have you had authority figures, teachers, scout leaders that you think just didn't encourage me like they could have done? And in some respect, there's then been some pain. Pain of abandonment. Pain of frustration. Pain of betrayal. I think you could see a load of that in this story. The Bible clearly says, doesn't it, the big picture is we don't need to feel that abandonment because actually the one that was abandoned was Jesus on the cross. And it's almost like, you know, Father, you've turned your face away. He was abandoned so that we can then know God as our Father. It's almost like the cross, it was to deal with our sins, but it was to make us sons and daughters of God. That's not so that we're abandoned. It's so that we're close. It's so that we're intimate. It's so that we're loved. You know what I'm saying? We could wake up every day and not suddenly feel, oh, I'm orphaned and I'm rejected and I'm disappointed. We could actually wake up every day and say, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. I think in some respect, that's the picture of Naomi. Now, I know that, you know, for some of us, we still have some struggles in life. I'm not going to say everything's just suddenly hunky-dory. One day it will all be sorted. 
I'm confident of that. And I'm confident that it's a picture of grace. That surely is a picture that we can pick up for this. I think that's got to bring us some hope, hasn't it? I felt it myself. And the thing is, if you feel abandoned, then you can push others away in pain. I wonder if we're really honest, even here this morning. You think, oh, how many of us you think, yeah, I've been hurt, so I don't let others close. I've been hurt, you know, so I just sort of think, oh, I think that even like Naomi, you know, she was almost pushing her daughter-in-law away. Why is that? You almost think, oh, was she just hurting? I think that's a challenge in this, this book that brings us some hope. You see, I think, though, that actually in all of this, in our pain, in our disappointment, there can be hope for a better day. John Piper, some of you know I like to read his sermons. He uh, preached for many years in America. Uh, I believe he's retired now. He says, when it comes to Ruth chapter 4, no matter where you are, if you love God, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. God wants you to know that when we follow him, our lives always mean more than we think they do. For the Christian, there is always a connection between the ordinary events of life and the stupendous works of God in history. Everything we do in obedience to God, no matter how small, is significant. I think that brings us that sense of hope, doesn't it? Actually, golly, it's been some tough times, but there's hope to come. And then this final section, 18 to 22. Some commentators even suggest, look, was that tacked on? I don't know if you remember, in week one, I said, some people even said the whole purpose of the book of Ruth was to try and justify David. I don't believe that myself. I think that actually what it's trying to say is, look, this story has got national or international consequences. You see, suddenly David is mentioned, Israel is mentioned. Even this whole line of Perez, I think it's trying to say something. We need to understand almost like the Hebrew way of thinking. If you were number seven in a family tree, that was the place of honor. Who's number seven in the family tree? I counted through. It's Boaz. So in some respect, there's almost this thing of actually Boaz has acted righteously and there's a sense of honor at the end. If you look at this, uh, if you were to try and pick it apart, I mean, we've got time to go through it all now. Five of those people took the, the, the journey from Moses into the... Um, into Egypt. Sorry, from Egypt to Moses, and the others took him from Moses to David. This is what it was saying. It was almost saying, look, this is the story of God's people here. And I think what, what we can take away from this is that our lives are caught up in history. It's so easy to, to think of just a, a temporary thing. My wife's phone contract is coming to an end. I don't know, I mean, she's only had the phone two years, and already it just doesn't seem to work. She keeps saying, I know she's really going for an iPhone 5, that's what she wants. You know, she said, look, the phone doesn't work, Pete, you know what I'm saying? But actually, somebody told me phones are not meant to work after about two years, are they? It's almost like why they give you a contract, it's almost like then they just stop functioning, you get rid of them. We live in a disposable society. You know what I'm saying? You have plastic cups and paper plates. And, and let's be honest, you know, most things last a couple of years, and, and if they last longer than that, well, actually, they're out of style, so we sling them anyway and get something else. It's a very changeable thing. I think when you see something like this, list this, 
genealogy at the end of the book, what it says is we're part of a God of the whole of history. I mean, you know, I, I get excited about Redeemer. I, I believe God's going to do some exciting things here. And, and the church has only been going eight months, I was working out. But actually, no, 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 we're part of God's story, and that's been going for years. And so it's not just a little thing here, is it? You think, actually, let's stand back and see the bigger picture. And you think, well, God has been doing this. And, and Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail. So I'm not just excited about something for eight months. I'm excited. Whoa, God, look at what you're doing. That's the excitement of when I look at something like this. When I look at something like this, what do I take away from that? I take away from the fact that we have a faithful God. Faithful God throughout generations. John Piper, again, I go back to him. He says the danger is, he says the biggest disease of our society is triviality. We get so caught up in the fact that, you know, 80% of gardens have got roses in them. I mean, who on earth would want to know a fact like that? You know, but we can get caught up, can't we, in, in these little things about life, and we forget the big picture. And I, I'll be honest, I can be the same myself. You know what I'm saying? I will be cheering on the Gooners this afternoon. You think, you know, I can get caught up in sport, and get caught up in this, and suddenly what this says is, hey, God's the God of history. The danger is that when we get caught up in the trivial, we lose our sense of worship. And so actually, I think by almost going to this story at the end of this great list of characters, what it's trying to say is we need to lift up our eyes and look to a great God that is worthy of our worship and our praise. That's surely what we could see from here. Another thing I was reading about this week is there are 10 names mentioned in that genealogy. Apparently, a 10-named family tree was significant for a king. And so basically the whole of this book, you could say, and we're coming to this crescendo at the end of the book, is actually about a king. If you remember, I said the last line of the book of Judges, which is when this story occurred, it says in Judges 21, 25, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. And so, you know, this is when the story of Ruth took place. And then it's almost like, but now we end up the book of Ruth by saying, hey, but there is a king. There is a king coming, and his name is David. I mean, David was considered the greatest king they ever had. Some would say David was the prophet, priest, king. He was the guy. I mean, if, if you read the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, and you're never quite sure who wrote it, guess David, because he wrote loads of them. You know, he was known as someone that worshipped God. He was known as someone that was passionate about God. He was the one, you know, he wanted to build a temple. He wasn't allowed to, but he collected loads of the money so that his son could do it. David was the one, you know, that was there, pressing on for it. He was the king. This is the king that they're talking about in this story. They say, some would say that his dynasty lasted for 400 years. But actually, Samuel prophesied that it was going to be an everlasting kingdom. And you can read that in 2 Samuel 7. You see, ultimately, if I had to think of a word for finishing chapter 4, I'd love to have picked all the others, but actually I'd have to say it's about a king and an expanding kingdom. Why an expanding kingdom? Well, because I think that this is pointing to the picture of Christ. This bit of the genealogy is recorded elsewhere in the Bible. And many of you say, yeah, of course it is, Pete. It's recorded in Matthew 1. Matthew 1, when they're talking about the line of Jesus, they quote this bit here. 
And actually what it's saying is, if you really understand this story, you could see that it's pointing down, David is going to be a great king of a nation, but actually in his line is Jesus Christ, who's the greatest king of all. We know that, don't we, from Revelation 17. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. You see, Boaz and, and Ruth and Naomi, they feel like they're playing out their little part in this life, but actually they're pointing towards the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Even by Boaz redeeming Ruth and helping her to become part of the people of God, he's helping us to understand something about this kingdom of David's that will come. Basically, it was that they would reach out to, to others, that it would be an expanding kingdom. Jesus then said that to the disciples, all authority, go into all the nations, make disciples. Because that's the kingdom that we learn about from Ruth. So I could think of Ruth and I could think, oh, what a beautiful, pretty little romantic story. Or I could think about Ruth and think, hey, this is someone that expresses hope, it expresses grace, it talks about Redeemer but ultimately it talks about the great king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And, and if I wanted us to end with one word for chapter 4, it would have to be this king. If I thought about Ruth, I could think, oh, they lived happy ever after. I could think, oh, Naomi had a baby and God remembered her when she felt abandoned. Or I could actually think what this story really pointed to was David and the king. And David and the king was really a picture of Jesus Christ, the everlasting king. Surely that makes a radical difference to our life, doesn't it? If Jesus really is king, it's got to impact the way I live, the way I speak, the way I think, the way I behave. That's why we'd want to worship. That's why we want to sing. That's why we're so grateful. Our king would die for us. Our king would come and, 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 and literally die for us. I heard a guy speaking yesterday, and he was talking even about, and it was about breaking bread, and, and it's almost like he, he tried to follow the whole gospel, and because of what we've done wrong, sin, we end up dying. It's almost like we end up being destined for the grave. But our king died to chase us into the grave to come out and bring us as sons of God. It's just it, what an amazing picture of the king that we serve. That's what it's really about. You know, so I can think of this little story and I can think, wow, this is mind-blowing. Which is why then, actually, I can't wait for next week when we start the next series. So we've done four weeks on Ruth, but now we're going to do four weeks on this, walk across the room, because actually, if I've got such wonderful, fantastic news, how do I help other people know that? How do they find it? How do I share some of this wonderful news I've got. Well, I'd love to give you all the answers, but obviously you have to come back next week. You have to buy the book. We will start reading it next week and working through it. But actually, it helps me. It helps me understand my story. It helps me understand that I don't just live in the trivia. It helps me get out of the day-to-day -day and think I'm part of the bigger picture. You see, I think the fascinating thing about Ruth is I could think I was just one little person or I can think, wow, there's all these big things I can love me. I don't know what your life is like. But I think God wants you to get caught up in his big picture and his big story. And I'm hoping that next week, being a part of this, that we think, okay, that's the part I play.
I know the band are going to come back and lead us. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to thank you so much that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We want to thank you, Jesus, that yours is an extending, expanding, increasing, amazing kingdom. We thank you that you loved us so much that you, the King of kings, would die for us on a cross. You'd rise again. You'd offer us life and forgiveness. Jesus, we're amazed by that. Jesus, we're bowled over by that. Jesus, we want to thank you for that. I don't want to rush on because I do still feel this morning that if you felt abandoned, that God would want to minister to you today. I'd just like just to think just for a moment. If you think, actually, I felt that. I'll be honest. I felt a boss let me down. I felt exposed. I felt abandoned. I felt I was left on my own. And then I get hurt. And it just builds up in my heart. And if I don't deal with it, it makes me hard-hearted. And then I can't receive God's love and I can't give it. And it may well be the others here this morning. You just think, actually, Pete, that's me. What I do know is God loves you. God wants you to take this picture of his grandmother cuddling this child. I'm thinking that you felt abandoned. But God loves you. God delights in you. For some of you, it was a parent. You felt abandoned by a parent. You felt they should have been there to protect and provide for you, and they didn't. We've got to forgive. We've got to look to the great king. Some of you, if you're honest, you look back and you think, I've just got a bit prickly. It's because you felt let down by friends in the past. You felt betrayed. You felt rejected. I believe this morning God wants to come and take that pain away. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come and touch our hearts. For those that have felt abandoned and hurt, those that have felt rejected, even by a past boyfriend or girlfriend, years ago, and just suddenly it comes back. Oh God, I pray you take that pain away. I pray instead there be the choice, the daily choice to forgive, to bless that person, and to go forward trusting you.